Welcome back to Behind the Tofu. A vegan podcast that brings you behind the tofu. Exploring underrepresented topics and issues surrounding veganism. My name is Seth. You can find me on Twitter at Bolts and Bombers. My name is Ashley. You can find me on Twitter at Generally Done. You can also find us on uh, BehindTheTofu.com and you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Today we have a guest. Our guest is Christopher Key Chapel. Christopher Key Chapel is a Doshi professor of Indic and Comparative Theology at Loyola Marymount University. He's the founder and faculty advisor for yoga studies in the Center of Religion and Spirituality. He's a former editor of Worldviews, Global Religions, Culture, and Ecology. He got his BA from State, State University of New York at Stony Brook in Comparative Literature and Religious Studies. He got his master's and PhD in History of Religions from Fordham University. He is familiar or fluent in seven languages and has over 100 published articles and books credited to his name related to religions. Needless to say, it is an honor to be able to speak to you on the topic of veganism and Asian religions. Um, are you vegetarian or vegan yourself? Yeah, what happened was I was reared in rural New York State. And until I was 11, we lived three miles outside the village of 700 called Lindenville, New York, on the south shore of Lake Ontario. And my parents being reared and introduced to the world in the 1930s and 40s, took up the near universal sport of hunting. And my father had grown up in rural Canada, my mother rural, even further west in New York State, and they loved hunting pheasant. And we actually, and here's sort of a double mark against this, this sort of lurid past, is that we actually had a, a mini kennel and we raised Labrador retrievers, one of whom I'm told came up to be a national champion. And the whole idea of a Labrador retriever, so beloved by so many families now, is that they were the best hunting dogs. And what I learned as a child was that when my parents went off with the dogs and their guns, that they were probably gonna come home with game. And they were not deer hunters, they were pheasant hunters. And back in the day, before the wild turkeys came back, the state of New York would actually stock pheasants for the purposes of hunting, just like they stock the streams with trout for the purposes of fishing. And this was a major part of really the job of government back in the day was to support this hunting culture. And I never really liked the meat. It was sort of tough and, you know, literally gamey. And I never liked when I would bite down with my still baby teeth on gunshot. And then you have to like get it out of your mouth. I mean, it's just part of the experience. And I never really liked watching my mother pluck the pheasant, disembowel the pheasant, then singe the skin and dress the pheasant. I mean, I always liked the stuffing that would come out, but that was the vegetarian part, sort of. And I just would go along with it. But then one day, so the whole hunting culture, you had a special hat, you have the vest, you have the 22, which was always in the corner of the kitchen. 
And you also, in addition to the dog, you have a burlap sack. And the job of the retriever is to follow the directions of the hunter and go across the field to where the pheasant has fallen and then to pick up the pheasant, and this is part of the training of Labrador retrievers, with their very, very gentle mouth and bring it back to the hunter without damaging the carcass. Now it so happened that when I was seven years old, when they unloaded the burlap sack with the carcasses, one of the birds had only been stunned. And with its radiant beauty, with the ring tail and the iridescent feathers, it flew all around our kitchen. And my heart soared as it soared. It was fatally wounded, however, but, and you know, this was just life culture, life on the farm back in the day, but my father wrung its neck. And as a seven-year-old, I vowed that when I had the opportunity, I would eschew all eating of meat. So as we got further into high school, and as we had the grilled cheese options, such as was available back in the, now we're around 1970, 1971, um, I just started gradually eliminating. And then when I went off to college, that was it. And the diet available to us was the diet, Francis Moore LePay, diet for a small planet and not exactly exclusively vegan in that time and culture, but nonetheless, that sort of launched me simultaneously into a diet alteration, but an overall lifestyle alteration. And I had the blessing and good fortune, my very first semester of chanting Sanskrit language, being sort of reinforced with this vegetarian worldview, and during that semester, um, which I spent that first year of University of Buffalo, not too far from where I grew up, but I met a woman from Long Island who had moved to the United States from Calcutta, was raising a family, um, and had herself trained in classical Indian dance and performed throughout the world but herself had trained in the 1940s in yoga in Calcutta. It all came together for her as she is this um, brown person in a sea of white on Long Island. And she felt in her heart of hearts that she must share this wisdom that she had received as a child that had come into into full efflorescence as a young mother. And she gathered together, there were probably about 100 tops, 200 of us at any given time. And we participated in a Gandhian way of life at Yoga Anandashram, Amityville, New York. And every day we were to remind ourselves of our weekly observance. And it would either be nonviolence, ahimsa, 
satya, holding to truth, asteya, not stealing, brahmacharya, in my case, I'm a teenage bride, so to speak, or a teenage husband, uh, faithfulness in marriage, and then a parigraha, which is minimization of possessions. Now, if you think about it, this is about as anti-American as one can be. I just recently was in the presence of James Lawson, who had, who had lived in India in the 1950s, learned Gandhian principles and practices, taught Rosa Parks, taught Martin Luther King Jr. And as he loves to remind us, America is the most violent culture in the history of planet Earth, built on guns, built on what he calls plantation capitalism. And these principles, these Gandhian principles go against every single one of them. Nonviolence is not just about peace. Nonviolence is saying, do something different. Truthfulness is not just like, oh, I didn't tell a lie. Truthfulness is about finding the ground and speaking and acting from that ground of reality of the self. Esteya means that we must be mindful of everything we take from one another, everything that we take from the planet. Brahmacharya means that we cannot let ourselves get trivialized by the body culture. And a parigraha means how much do we need? And when it comes down to it, we need very little. And every week, and now I remind myself of all of these every, every morning, but every week we were to dive deep into these ways of engaging the world. And part of that expression gave birth to Santosha Vegetarian Restaurant. Uh, 1977, I was in graduate school and I literally cooked my way through graduate school. And it was one of the greatest yoga gifts I ever received. And to this day, I still cook for my students. And to be able to take, and our, our Bible was uh, the Moosewood Cookbook. We were just a bunch of kids. I mean, teenagers and in our early 20s, and we had to go up against, you know, the health department and, you know, all of the inspections. We would get up at two in the morning to go to Hunts Point in order to get all of the fresh vegetables. And we took to heart what we learned from Francis Moore LePay's Diet for a Small Planet, took to heart Laurel's Kitchen, which, of course, came to us again through the coaching of an Indian guru, took to heart the Moosewood cookbook, the great vegetarian co-op in Ithaca, New York. And we just welcomed people for 25 years, cooking, creating community, offering music until ASCAP told us, oh, you can't play anybody else's music. So we had to create our own music. And it was, it was the best because in being a public presence, lifting vegetarianism up as a valid lifestyle option, being the only place on Long Island with this commitment, 
it was it was energizing and it was transformative certainly for us because in the food industry you learn so much about yourself and you learn so much about business and you learn so much about other people so that's sort of the background and the context So thank you for sharing your story. I found that to be really interesting. And I like how you touched upon a lot of different aspects, but ranging from like, uh, you know, the history with your family's hunting and, you know, a touch on religion. And so in regards to just ethics and such, one of the first articles that we read for our podcast in our first episode uh, back in August of last year was your article, Animal Ethics in Nature. Could you give our listeners a brief overview of how Ahimsa informs nonviolence towards animals in Indian culture? And are there other sources of Asian theology that you're aware of which support animal welfare, animal rights, and just animal liberation in general? Uh, I love that question. This is my life's work. So, you know, what can I say is that, yes, this is the message that we all need to hear. And what happens in India and I've had a very busy morning. I was with James Lawson, the, the hero of nonviolence, who's into his mid-90s. And I was also earlier with the School for Oriental and African Studies annual conference on Jainism. And they lifted up this delineation from 1,500 years ago of 84 lakh, that is 8.4 million different species of animals and life forms identified by the early biologists in India. And as we go back even earlier to the text called the Acharanga Sutra around 300 BC, 2300 years ago, but recording information conveyed, writing had just sort of come into vogue. So all of this would have been memorized for 200 years before it actually got written down. But in the Acharanga Sutra, we are introduced to this exquisite biocosmology and we're instructed about how to view our relationship with the world, the world writ small, that is the world of microbes, how to relate to the elemental world, how to regard the stuff of earth itself, of water, of energetic fire, and all of its fantastic presence that allows us to have podcasts. How do we relate to the wind and to our own breath? And where do we find ourselves within space? And part of this brings us to considering all of the different layering through which life finds expression. And the microbes and the plants and the very stuff of rocks and water, fire and air itself are all said to possess the sense of touch. So that when you bump into a door and you say, excuse me, and we've all done it, okay, you're going to this primal awareness that we live in a living universe. And then we take it a little bit further 
we part the earth and we see the worms. And I think all of us have had our hearts go out to those earthworms that become exposed on the concrete during heavy rain. We don't know, do we put them back in? Are they gonna drown? What are they doing? And we also hear that if you cut an earthworm in half, you get two earthworms, which I think is really trippy. But what do earthworms add? Okay, they add this capacity for taste and they add to the earth itself. And it's said that a major percentage of soil every single night passes through the digestive tract of these remarkable beings. And then we look a little bit more closely. And here in California, we have an ant problem periodically where they just show up. And why do they show up? According to the Jains, and there's lots of ants and very big ants in India, they can smell stuff. And that they follow that olfactory sense that gets added on to the taste and the touch. And they'll go here and they'll go there and they'll go here. And we know that they drop pheromones and that they follow each other and they drop little nuggets that they can go from one scent to the next. And then we look at, well, I don't want to bring it quite up yet to dogs, but I can't talk about smell without talking about dogs who have 400 times the capacity that we do, that big snout full of neural receptors for the olfactory, okay? And then we look a little bit more closely to the butterflies and the bees. And we see that they're attracted by color. And we see these remarkable ocular structures that become added to this higher layer, if you will, more complex layer, I should say, expression of life. And then hearing and thinking. When we look at mammals, when we look at prairie dogs with their vigilance, when we look at the birds with their spring call, inviting the start of the reproductive cycle, we see something we recognize within ourselves. And these giant thinkers, at least 2,800 years ago, but they claim that they're far older than that, which probably is at least partly the case, what the giant thinker said is that any time we do harm to any of those life forms, we not only diminish ourselves, but we hurt ourselves. And as we know from yogic studies, and we know from modern electric, electrical field studies, the human body is complex and that we have this energetic field, an electrical field that is both internal and external, it extends beyond our epidermis. And that when we do something really not okay, it leaves a dent, it leaves a 
scar in Sanskrit is samskara that predisposes us to repeat that not so auspicious behavior. So I'm told that, you know, we have this real problem in the United States of young white men shooting either themselves or up to 40,000 people per year. This is a greater killer than nearly any other disease. And what are the training wheels for this? And I knew little boys who would capture flies and tear off their wings. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I knew little boys who started with a BB gun and graduated from there to become hunters. And I said, I'm not going to do that. But there's this culture of violence, this culture defined by the presence, the phallic presence of the gun that seems to give power and importance. It is so misguided and so misdirected. And what the lesson of Ahimsa offers is for us to just simply go back to our childhood sensibilities. That rather than falling into that literal rabbit hole of torture that can be externalized into carnage, whether sanctioned in the military or through mental derangement expressed through random violence, what we need to do is to, even as adults, re-educate ourselves to just simply go to the zoo and see the kinship that we feel. One of our yoga assignments, in fact, was to find an animal and simply be with that animal, whether it be a dog, a cat, a squirrel running on the electric wires or whatever it may be, but to just simply regard. One of the great gifts of the pandemic is that people have rediscovered the birds in their neighborhood. And with this can come an opening of the heart. And we get an extra bonus, okay, an extra biocosmology bonus with this attunement to the life of animals. And this is the lovely narrative of the continuity of life. In the Bhagavad Gita, it says, hey, you've always been here. You're always going to be here. Nothing can make you who you are except you. And nothing can ever kill you. You will continue. And in the Indian worldview, this translates into something that is, by the definition of the Christian missionaries, not good, 
Samsara indicates that, oh, it doesn't matter what you do because you always get another chance, you always come back, but that's not the purpose of the idea of birth after birth after birth. The purpose of this, and I've gone to the literature from a thousand years ago and earlier, that tells the story and demonstrates the purpose of this story of life after life after life after life. And I'm going to summarize this one that just made my heart sore. And it goes like this. Many years ago, in a place where rivers converge to form the Ganges in the Himalayas in Northern India, there was a lovely family, a father, a mother, two sons coming into maturity. And their father, whose name was Dirga Tapas, which means long austerity. He was an expert meditator, very adept at fasting, very adept at all manner of self-control. He became very elderly and he expired. And it says that just as a bird takes wing, so also his spirit soared and he'd lived such a full life, he went into that place of eternal freedom, moksha, consciousness, nirvana, forevermore. And that his wife, with a mixture of sadness and rejoicing, went into a meditative state, suspended her connection with this body, and likewise, her spirit soared. And their two sons responded to this transition very differently. The elder son, whose name was Punya, which means the good son, and sort of biblical here, did what needs to be done. And in Indian tradition, there's a funeral pyre constructed. And the eldest son says prayers and in the process of incinerating the body allows those spirits to soar into total freedom. But the younger son, whose name was Pavan, which means sort of windy and ungrounded, he was really upset. And he weeped and he wailed and he ran into the forest shrieking. His heart was broken because his parents had died. And Punya heard the weeping and the wailing. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you mourn. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you mourn. And he went into the forest and he found his brother. And he led him out to the clearing and just calmed him down and said, 
Look out into that meadow. And one of the, the wonderful things about visiting India, which when the world returns and travel makes sense again, and that may never make sense again, I'm not sure. But you can do this. You don't have to travel to do this. But in India, the animals are in such abundance. But he just said, look over there. Look at those deer. And the deer become a teaching point, as I think deer have always been to us. And one of the benefits of growing up with hunters is that we learned how to see. And we were trained by our parents to identify all of the different birds, not just to chase after pheasants. We learned about stopping by the side of the road and counting the number of deer that could be seen on the edge of the forest. And Punya said to Pavin, those deer were born of mother and father. Those deer with blessing themselves will become mother and father. Why are you grieving for our mother and father? Why not also grieve for the deer whose life is similarly precious and demonstrably even more beautiful? And they sit for a long time. And in this conversation, they regard the lion on the ridge. And I've had the good fortune in Santa Monica Mountains of seeing a mountain lion, like a bolt of yellow lightning just crossing our path and just saying, wow, I have been given a gift. And he said, consider, this bird, consider that bird. And then he said, consider that stately tree. You have also been a tree, as were our mother and father. Consider the noble people, the rulers of kingdom, you have been part of that family. And consider the learned people who perform ritual and chant wisdom. You have been part of that family. And consider the worker toiling in the field. You have been part of that family. And consider the ants in the heap of dung. You have been that ant. This goes on for hours, this extended meditation on the intimacy to be found through observation of life. And Pavan, who had been so disordered, finds peace. And Punya has found a calling. 
of being able to help other people by pointing to the obvious. And what is the obvious for us? The obvious is that we are born into this abundance of expressions of life. And that in order to honor ourselves, we must first notice and then honor life in all of the various shapes that are made available to us and perhaps make it our task to go a little bit further. And you see this image in back of me, um, it's of a village of Madagascar. And I love this batik because it shows the simplicity of life in Madagascar. No electricity, okay, no chimneys, long story about a culture that in some ways time forgot. Well, my own sister reared in that same house with the dogs and the guns and that ensconced herself with my older siblings in the forest for extended periods of time, became great observers. And she discovered in Madagascar, a species of lemur never known, never documented, and has trained, built a national park. And through her professoriate has trained many PhDs from Madagascar in the field of primatology and now lifting up and protecting the land, lifting up protecting the many species that rely upon the rainforest of Madagascar. And this intimacy comes through observation and it's through observation that our heart opens and it's with the opening of the heart that we find a resolve to do what we can do. All right, I'm going to move on to the next question. Everything you've said so far has been really beautiful. Uh, I just wanted to say that. Um, and I also wanted to say that I, I did did not come from a hunting family, but I come from, came from a farming family. Um, so I had a very similar uh, experience to, you know, watching my mom um, pick the feathers off of a chicken and watching them cut the head off. And it was, it, it also changed my, the way that I thought about animals. So I wanted to share that. <laughs> um, so in our last episode, we discussed briefly how cultural idioms such as um, beat the horse to death are used in our common vernacular to normalize violence against animals. Uh, it made me think of other ways that we depict animality in our culture. Being beastly is equated to ugliness. Um, and there's other, very many other ways that animality is seen as a negative, um, you know, aspect. So um, I, the question I have is, do any of the cultures or religions that you study treat animality differently? I know that you basically just went through that, but... Um... Yeah, I think that the starting point is to examine and interrogate our own language and to recognize the, not only the othering of species, but the racism inherent in the American cultural memory. 
And part of growing up in rural Fruit Belt, New York, was seeing the Blacks bust up, living in squalid conditions to plant the crops, to harvest the crops, and to see these human beings treated as animals in every way. So just as I said that the training ground for violence starts with cruelty to animals, so also the training ground for racism starts in the languaging of brute animal, which is an expression from the slave period. And that this languaging of violence is just so pervasive. And we use so many military metaphors in American English that simply are not found in other cultures. And in the many times that I visited the Goshalas, that is the cow shelters in India, and the bird hospital in Delhi, which is quite renowned, there's just such a different, such a more gentle attitude that is brought to the table, to the room, when there's this underlying agreement that no, animals are not different from ourselves. And this process of othering is a learned process. It's a linguistic process. And it is something that requires careful attention and something that is um, is just so critically important for us to own the history of violence, search out its remnants in the life patterns that are just quintessentially American, if you will, and to also be vigilant that with global neoliberalist capitalism, that this has now become sort of the global standard and that the people of China have now replicated factory farming. The people of India are now also finding themselves with the realities of factory farming and petroleum-based agriculture, which requires fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides manufactured by the global companies that make a lot of money off of this that are generally either out of Europe or America. And that there are just so many ways in which we need to do consciousness raising. And that the good news is that they say that if 1% of the population gets it, then the whole culture can eventually change. And I loved it when Oprah was um, pilloried by the meat industry some years ago for suggesting that eating steak is not a good thing. And they you know, threw a libel suit against her. And I remember when I think it was Sybil Shepherd, and this is more than 20 years ago, 
would go on, she's sort of a symbol of the good Texan and the good beef eating Texan. And they had to put her on TV is saying, eating beef is good for you. And I said, oh boy, that means if they're having to do a marketing campaign, that the tide is beginning to turn. So we know that there's a lot more work to be done, but these tech geniuses are making possible transformation of the whole food thought industry. And it's a thought even before it's an industry, but they are really doing amazing work at engineering. Uh, I remember when Veggie Grill opened, a couple of Indian high-tech scientists sort of gave up their engineering career to go into bioengineering of food stuff and it's really taken off. So what, uh, what I was going to say is that an example of that is that Just Egg, um, which created, you know, um, vegan eggs, they recently got a really huge investment and they're going to start doing more cell-based um, meat products. Um, so that's going to be meat growing. And they're also going to be start, start producing more um, sustainable versions of other animal products. And so that's something that in, in the vegan community, a lot of people aren't very open to cell-based um, options and I'm not, I'm not going to eat that one day, but I do think that it is something that is really awesome to see um, that there's a lot, a lot of these companies that are growing and stuff like that. Sorry. Yeah. And I loved that the, in the LA times, there was a full page ad taken out against these companies and they said, there's chemicals in this stuff. And I thought, okay, um, they're afraid. And that's, that's an interesting moment. So when it comes to marketing, what fascinates me is that, you know, you're, you're totally right about how there's so much money and advertising behind all the meat and the dairy and the other animal product industries. And as Dr. Greger has said before, there's no big broccoli trying to promote, you know, eating vegetables. There's no big bean or big you know, potato that's going to, you know, gain money off of you buying the healthier option. It's unfortunate that like, you know, the healthcare system in general just profits off of people being sicker than being healthier. And I really hope that in going forward in the future, we can sort of shift that mindset from a cultural standpoint, as well as from a, you know, a state and systemic standpoint of trying to how we're going to lead people in the right way. Yeah, and it's interesting because the science has been here for decades and decades and decades. And as I said, I became vegetarian when I was 17. And when I was 25, I got this remarkable job at a place called the Institute for Advanced Studies of World Religions, founded by a Taoist Buddhist from China. And he was very interested, as are all Taoists, in health and in long life. And the whole alchemical process is about making this body last as long as it can. And in Japan, you know, largely Shinto Buddhist Taoist country, they have a very, very long life because they've taken this seriously, this, this enterprise of good health seriously. So he signed us all up for an annual physical at the Life Extension Institute of affiliated with Rockefeller University. 
in New York City. And that was our big day, was that we got on company time a free day in Manhattan. And when the physical would take an hour and then we'd go to a museum or, you know, just it was like party day uh, for us culture types. But I remember I became part of a study when I was 25 year old, 25 year, years old of fat cells. And they put this thing in my side and pulled out my, my whatever, lipids. And then I had to go back in um, a month later. And they told me exactly, and they never asked me, but they said, okay, we can see what you eat. And we just want you to know that your lifespan, first of all, they gave you, and I was a little bit embarrassed about this, but um, because it put me back pre-puberty, but they said that the biological age of my body was 16 years younger than my biological age, you know, chronological age. And that, you know, just because of the food choices that I've made, and that have manifested in my biology that I'll live at least 10, if not 16 years older than the average American. And they know this from uh, longitudinal studies of Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Adventists um, founded by a woman in Western New York State, just down the road from where I had that whole epiphany with the pheasants. And uh, she um, created this movement that re-examines the Bible and says, that, no, we aren't given dominion over the animals. We are invited to nourish ourselves on the seeds and the vegetables and the grains. And her great disciple, Mr. Kellogg, moved to California and he made this incredible um, amount of money with cereal and came with this real focused attention on health. So the data has been here forever. And what needs to happen is that, and it is happening, is that this knowledge, um, which is empirical and verified, this knowledge just really needs to percolate. And unfortunately, there's these countervailing forces of the paleo diet and these other, you know, people out there shooting these other viewpoints that don't hold up under science because hardening of arteries is really a recipe for both heart disease and stroke and also cancer. Um, and I'm told now there's no guarantees in life but I'm told that because of this you know, decades long commitment that I probably have decades to come. And you know, some years ago, I would not have lived even this long. Um, and it's not all that far in the past that lifespan was much shorter. So the last question that we have is regarding um, the practices of yoga and meditation. And I wanna relate that to sort of activism in general. And so one of the issues that a lot of activists in the political world face is that, well, to be frank, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world and it can be 
pretty overwhelming to sort of immerse yourself in all of that and try and want to take on the world and want to change everything. And that's a good thing in its own to want to be that driving force. But one of the things that gets talked about in activist spaces is the idea of self-care and, you know, taking care of yourself before you can sort of, you know, improve the lives of others. And, uh, you know, how can you relate the importance of yoga and meditation to that to someone who may not be as informed about it as yourself? Uh, well, growing up in the orbit of Rochester, New York, Frederick Douglass, every time you're at RIT, you're in eyeshot view of his farm. And you must go to the Elizabeth Caton, St St Stanton, Katie, and, um, you know, the, the, the women's movement started in Rochester and Seneca Falls. And when I was a young person, I came into the Quaker community committed not only to nonviolent lifestyle, but committed to an activism that changes. And through the Quakers came the rise of feminism, through the Quakers came the rise of abolition. And I did trial watching um, back in Rochester of the Flower City Seven. I helped, in fact, um, indirectly. I had known one of the jurors and had gotten in trouble with my biology teacher. Anyway, so I'm just saying that I'm just, you know, activism is what gives us purpose in life. However, after I moved to Long Island, while involved with uh, folks in a campaign against the B-1 bomber. There had been a meeting, I wasn't at this meeting, but one of the young activists who was actually a neighbor had disagreed with some decision that was made and got really upset and just ran out of the house in the driving rain and was hit by a car and killed. And he was an age mate. And his family experienced so much sorrow as did the community. So out of that grieving experience, I really came to a profound understanding of Gandhi's articulation of the practice of yoga. And at the very end of the second chapter, the last 18 verses of the Bhagavad Gita, he lifts up the person with stitta prajna. He lifts up the person whose way of engagement, prajna, going out, thinking about the world, being in the world, is stitta, stable and calm. For Gandhi, there are two problems in the world, and only two. One is anger. The other is desire. And if we track back all of the problems in the world, they come from desire that leads to greed. They come from anger that cannot be controlled. And as I reflected on the death of my friend, I saw that he wanted the world to be a different way. He was, rather than being a nonviolent activist, he had 
thrown himself headlong into crusade. And we know how much damage happened in the crusades. And Gandhi was a campaigner of a sort, but he was not a crusader. And this delicate balance of finding that truth and speaking truth to a power that damages, okay, finding that balance requires great patience, requires great tenacity, and requires a vision, a mission statement, if you will, that must be the constant reminder. So what does yoga do? And I'll just talk a little bit about my own practice, um, is that every day I get up before the sun, Every day I do pranayama and asana. Every day, as I mentioned before, I remind myself of those ethical grounding principles of yoga. And I meditate and I chant and I walk or run or swim or bike. But bottom line, when I add it all up, every day requires two hours of self-care before manifesting within the work world. And my work world is education. But unless I'm in my best self, I can't be a resource. I, can't, I have no authority to tell anybody anything. And the studies have shown that people that probably six hours is better in terms of the RNA, DNA thing, but they, you know, the science labs say that your telomeres which are the things that give you long life, get longer as you commit yourself to extended periods of meditation every day. And I'd like to lift up Margaret Mead, and I don't know quite who she was quoting, but I think all of us have been involved at one time or another to varying degrees with very optimistic and idealistic nonprofit organizations, some of which have long life, some of which don't. And we may think that, oh, what little thing I'm doing, how could it make a difference? And, and she's famous for having said, people may deride small idealistic groups that seek to make change, but history has shown, as I earlier talked about the Quakers. History has shown that change only comes through the committed perseverance of small groups of hopeful people. And what can give us hope is our own ability to be who we are. And what gives us courage, rising to whatever occasion presents itself. I, I definitely, uh, I've had a lot of grief in my life recently. Um, and I, I will, I, I'm just gonna say, I'm gonna take this to heart moving forward in my life that, um, you know, spending some time on self-care is definitely something important that I don't do as much as I should. I don't know, I was gonna ask if you had anything you wanted to promote. I know that you, uh, I think that I saw that you had a book that came out recently. I don't want to be wrong about that. Okay, I'll talk about the book because I'm, I love this book. It's called Living Landscapes, Meditations on the Five Elements in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain Yogas. 
And my mission in life is to give people tools to develop intimacy. And this explains an age-old process found in multiple traditions really throughout the world that by giving our sustained attention to soil, giving our sustained attention to water, giving our sustained attention to light and heat and energy, giving our sustained attention to the breath and to the wind, giving our sustained attention to how we configure space down to the minutia of zoning laws and exclusionary zoning laws, that by examining these things, we can open our hearts. And through opening our hearts, and sometimes hazarding our hearts being broken, that we can find the strength to do what we know in our heart of hearts must be done, either through direct action or by example. So Living Landscapes, that's the name of the book. And I'm, you know, yeah, if I have a product, that's it. But don't buy products. Try to buy fewer products, but work on your mind and heart and your hands. Well, this has been Behind the Tofu, and our guest is Christopher Key Chapel. Again, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and uh, or wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, goodbye, guys. I'm going to start.